This edition of the Matt Brown Show is powered by PwC South Africa. Matt Brown, Matt Brown, Matt Brown. The Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt, Matt Brown, Brown Show. Matt Brown, Matt Brown, Matt Brown Show. Hey guys, so I have a question for you. Have you heard of disruptive technologies like robotics, artificial intelligence, and 3D printing before? Now, I imagine that you would have heard of these terms before at some point, but what if I asked you this? What workforce will you need to employ in the future because of these technologies? Now, you probably haven't given that much thought, but the truth of the matter is that you are not alone. You see, since the Industrial Revolution, we have attempted to automate our businesses as much as possible in order to drive operational efficiencies, and ultimately, we do this in the pursuit of profit. Now, think about the robots that assemble today's cars on the world's largest production lines, where there used to be thousands of men literally assembling cars piece by piece. Today, you have a small army of highly efficient, intelligent machines doing the job instead. But the advent of computing heralded a new age for automation, as companies today can automate and outsource not only physically demanding tasks, but also those traditionally requiring human cognitive abilities. You see, robots and artificial intelligence are combining to create the next evolutionary step in driving efficiencies across a wider variety of tasks, processes, job functions, business areas, and industry sectors. It is called intelligent automation, and it combines new technologies such as AI and RPA or robotic process automation to enable businesses to automate all kinds of processes across geographical borders for the very first time. So to what extent will robots rule the workforce of the future? How much is science fiction and how much is based in sound reality? And perhaps most importantly, how do you prepare yourself for a future when thanks to exponential technology, there can be any number of possible futures? In this live podcast with PwC South Africa, we explore the world of intelligent automation and its implications for the modern day business world. Your panelists include Brandon Stafford, the intelligent automation lead for PwC Australia, Alistair Hofitz, the Intelligent Automation Lead for PwC South Africa, Barry Forster, the People and Organization Partner for PwC South Africa, and Costa Natsis, the Banking and Capital Markets Lead for PwC South Africa, and of course, myself. But before we jump into the meat and potatoes of the live show, it's time for a little appetizer with a couple of our panelists. How's it, guys? So with me, I have Brandon Stafford, who's the Australian lead for uh, intelligent automation for PwC. And also with me, I have Alistair Hofert. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You did? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He's the intelligent automation lead for uh, PwC in South Africa. Welcome, guys. Thanks a lot. Hey, Matt. Thank you. Guys, you've just done a live podcast and show on the Matt Brown Show with a live audience. Uh, Did you guys enjoy the experience? I think it was awesome. Um, I enjoyed it. I mean, just a few moments ago, we were swapping stories about people asking us questions that we had not thought of, which, yeah, certainly very awesome. I liked the fact that we could explore ideas amongst each other in terms of these our experiences, this is what we 
see happening in the economy, and then also opening up up about uh, some of the opportunities I think that we see out there. So for me, there's general excitement. Using a platform like this, I think, is great because you can share what you've seen and you can also learn from other people at the same time and swap some of the difficult stories, uh, not only the fun stuff. Yeah, I loved it. Matt, I thought you set up really well. Thank you so much for hosting so well. It was really great. You're very welcome. Um, and really enjoyed bouncing off everyone in the team. I think Barry brought some really thoughtful uh, uh, thoughts around you know, uh, what's going to happen to the workforce going forward, um, what's the impact on people. I think that was the part that really stuck out for me today. You know, we often are talking about in the corporate sense around what is the impact of the bottom line, how is this going to help the organization, how is this going to reduce risk, all those sorts of things, and people really get left behind. And that really came out a lot today. Is what's the impact on people, how is this going to change jobs, what's the workforce of the future going to look like, and it's something that I'm going to be thinking a lot more of after this. Yeah, I think it's quite easy to get uh, romanticized about the technology. You know, AI, it's like take the next 10,000 startups from Silicon Valley, just add AI. Yeah, that's do you know right. what I mean? Exactly. It's like, do you have an AI component? Exactly, yeah. Because if you yeah. don't, then you're right. no longer investable, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the reality is actually this is about people. You know, when, exactly. We're not numbers yeah. exactly. know, anymore, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Exactly. I think my thinking has transformed. To, you know, the number one conversation I talk about today is only people. That's it. So if you if you mention the word robots, you'll see uh, when I engage clients today, like how do we walk the journey with you so that you still keep that component of humanity? Um, I mean, you heard me speaking in the show. I mentioned art, love, music, food, dining experiences and those things because I passionately believe that we can open up some opportunities. Uh, even from the questions we heard today, I can see that the audience also needs to walk that journey of, uh, okay, now I understand what this thing is. How do I deal with it? With all the advances that have come in technology over the last 100 years, we're working harder than ever before. And I think the thing that stuck out for me today was what's the opportunity for us to actually work a little bit less and let the robots do a bit more? It's funny that uh, when, when we had the Q&A right at the end of the, of the show, how many questions were based around uh, relevance. Yeah. Actually, like, will I be relevant in yeah. the future? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've spoken about this before, and it's you know it's called the irrelevance bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you think about robotics and intelligent automation and AI and all this kind of cool stuff, I say cool in inverted commas, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> uh, from a technology perspective, but from a real workforce and real world application perspective, I think a lot of people are very worried mm-hmm. about the implications of mm-hmm. um, an automated workforce through technology. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what what are your sentiments around that? I think we've got a responsibility. A bit earlier in the show, I mentioned, you know, yes, there is this change coming. You heard a lot of things where I always take the upbeat look, the positive outlook for humanity. However, with that, I think comes a significant responsibility for firms such as ourselves, uh, PwC, as well as governments. <laughs> That's a really big job. And I'm not even sure if we're going to get it right, to be honest with you. But I, I do think the answer is, number one, to help people deal with that. Uh, so we're going to do that. You, you'll hear something come out next year. It's called Ubuntu 2.0. And this is because it's personally hit me uh, when I've sat in front of CEOs, one of the large insurers in South Africa. I, I watched, number one, excitement turn to fear because I have this responsibility of letting a whole lot of people know that they may not stick around and I'm not sure I want to do that thing. That human connection has forced me to think about Ubuntu, and I've chosen that word on purpose because in South Africa and Africa, we're going to make it our job to make that personal to help people deal with it, number one, not because I think they must go away, but number two, we need to find a way, which I don't think is obvious and open to people today, 
to help people change. I'm encouraged by the people I get to speak to in my, with my clients. Um, I'm working with an automobile association in Australia right now who they were started to try and convince people uh, that actually automobiles were safe vehicles to take a drive in, right? So this isn't the time when, you know, people were using horses to get around. And there were these jobs called farriers where the people looked after the horses and they helped the farriers to be able to find new jobs. They're now going looking at autonomous vehicles coming along going, how, what's our responsibility in this? How can we help people to not be afraid about autonomous vehicles? I also think about the conversation we had earlier today with one of the CIOs, one of the large insurers here in South Africa, who was saying, uh, he's not going to go on a robotics program if it's going to have an impact on the people and it's going to actually send them out into the street. And he's saying, how can we use this to improve revenue rather than actually taking costs out, taking people out of the business? I'm encouraged by those people and it's something I'm going to take away thinking about. What are those kind of things that they're thinking that we can inject more into the work that we do going forward? I think it's cyclical, right? So when um, when Uber first came on, everyone revolted, like the taxi drivers, you know, like in Paris. Remember all that stuff. And then, like, six months later, the Uber introduced autonomous cars, and then the Uber drivers revolted against the autonomous cars. Do you know what I mean? And it just seems to be like we're in this cyclical process, for lack of a better description, around technology and disruptive business models and all this kind of cool stuff. So if you were to sum up the one thing that listeners should look out for in the show that they're about to hear, what would that be? How to deal with change and keep hope because the more you learn, the more exciting it becomes. It's not about the technical, it's about the human aspects and the human aspects are becoming more and more valuable. So don't put those things down. Think about problem solving, think about creativity, think about communication. Those are things that make a difference in the world in the future. Thank you guys. And with that, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. This is the third live podcast, this time with uh, PwC. Uh, today we're going to be exploring the subject of people, robots, and the future of intelligent automation. So I'm going to make this quite easy to start off with, but I'm going to open this question up to you guys, so feel free to jump in and have a debate. Um, but I know many of my listeners uh, around the world probably won't know what we mean by intelligent automation, and I think uh, for the lowest common denominators, <laughs> to use a, 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 a pretty poor expression, um, is... How do we define what intelligent automation is, number one? And in your expert's uh, opinion, guys, why does it matter? Cool. Thanks, Matt. Um, intelligent automation is, is a collective term that we use. Uh, I, I wouldn't profess us to be experts. It's just a point of view that you're putting out there. It's an umbrella term that we use to describe today the four or five types of uh, automation instances related to software robotics. Uh, so these are not mechanical robots, as we've seen before. I do think they will converge in the future because we've seen some of this in Asia already, um, software robotics and mechanical robots. Uh, but to speak to your lowest common denominator point, if I look at what's happening at the back end of 2016 and what we see happening now in 2017, the most common term we see is robotic process automation and what that thing is like today, which I think is going to be very different in the future, is the simple routine activities that humans perform um, involving computers and documents and data manipulation, uh, taking things in and out of computers, um, and even basic workflow. So that is what robotic process automation is about. There are other types of instances where you will hear us speak a bit later around uh, natural language processing, where you would want to have a customer experience using a robot 
to smooth the way that you'll consume services in the future. And then the last type of instance of uh, software automation uh, is in the cognitive space. And this is all about allowing uh, computers to make decisions based on the way uh, the computers learn. A subset of that um, is machine learning. So you'll see, uh, without going into all the technical detail, that there's libraries of, of math algorithm that you can build up and reuse. Uh, but that's life after RPA 1.0, as we call it, um, where machines will learn how to make decisions and humans will train them. Man, I think what we're seeing right now is um, in the past there's been a lot of automation of blue-collar work and really for the first time in history we're seeing a lot of automation of white-collar work and I think that's why there's a lot of uh, interest in this area because this is the type of automation that can take you know, processes that are currently being run by you know, people with university degrees and be able to automate those processes. So, you know, pretty intelligent uh, mimicking of human actions through programming rules and also, to Alistair's point, starting to be able to do judgment through things like artificial intelligence. So I have this, this kind of have to ask the question, right? Because uh, some people, like, if you think about robots, I mean, like, what's the first thing that the average person thinks about, you know, or the picture that winds up in their head? So, I mean, uh, there's this, this lovely phrase uh, that I'm going to quote you. So some people call this period the dehumanization of science fiction, and others call it a love story between humans and machines. <laughs> So uh, how many, like, obvious question, how, how can companies distinguish between the reality, right, of where intelligent automation is going and it, what its implications will be versus what, you know, they feel is potentially, I don't know, in their heads at least, a justification for science fiction? Uh, yeah, so the romance and drama of robots has been around since the 60s. I mean, if you go back and look at comics and, like, whatever's been going on there dating robots, uh, all sorts of things that we've seen over the years. What's different now um, is the convergence and the speed of technology growth. Uh, and I think, just to start with the practical stuff, a little bit earlier you said ask the right questions and you'll get the answers. Instead of just making assumptions and thinking we've got robots walking around the building doing stuff all the time, rather ask the question, what can it do? How does it work? Uh, how do I interact with the software? Uh, ask crazy questions like, do I need to interact with my fridge? Must I print food? Uh, am I going to grow seeds in three weeks so that I can feed Africa? Ask the crazy questions because through that you're going to learn the flaws and caps of what's really out there and then you're going to hear some of the science fiction coming with that. But ask the right questions. I think, um, so, so as we saw in the Industrial Revolution, it all depends on where you stand in the socioeconomic ladder. And I think, you know, what happened in, the, in that revolution was people who were on the lower rungs really felt the brunt of this. The big difference now is it's people within the middle rungs who are going to feel the brunt of this because really, you know, your labour-intensive, lower education work is quite difficult to automate and also your very high education uh, work where you're actually designing how things are going to work is quite difficult to automate. So it's really those middle rungs where you kind of got a university degree, those are the areas where people can start feeling this. And I think that's why there's a lot of interest around it. Uh, guys, can I just remind you, please keep the mic on your chin because you're doing shows and I'm dropping the, the volume here. Cool. Um, so um, what ent- there's another question. It's like, will robots inherit the earth? Yes. But will they be our children? Well, 
Well, yes, but there will be our children. Sorry, that was a quote by Marvin Minsky. He's a cognitive scientist, very heavily involved in robotics. So my question to you guys is, like, how will robots put humans at the center of what we do? Because it feels to me, especially when you think about the workforce implications, that that is not what's likely to happen in mm. some uh, instances. So Matt, I thought I'll start with about three quotes, but... Uh there's, there's a varying degree of, of thinking. Some people say about 10% of people will be influenced. I see there are good studies that look at anything between 40 and 45% of people losing their jobs between now and 2034. And then you've got Elon Musk that says this is going to cause the next world war. Question is, out of all of these dramatic things, what will happen? So I, there are many theories of what could happen and they've happened before. So there'll probably be interesting new jobs for people to do that we've not even conceived yet. I'm not sure people know, if, if you think back that this cell phone, this Apple thing is 10 years old um, this year, we didn't conceive that we'd do those things in 2007 and the full implications. Do I think it'll place humans at the center? There's an interesting article by some anthropologists that have looked at the San um, in the Kalahari and looked at how they lived and they think that they lived and worked about 20 hours a week. Whereas we think the work week is a very recent established thing that we've done. Perhaps it's time for us to relax in different ways and do things differently and save the earth in other ways. And perhaps that's what will happen. And perhaps we will be in a place where it will be more about those very human attributes and being less machine-like. I guess if you think about it, it's, uh, it's the industrial age factory of education, right? And it's kind of, if you know that if you go to school these days, that you kind of being groomed to go and get a job at Anglo-American, right? Mm. And so when you think about uh, RPA or robotic process automation in uh, car assembly lines, right? What happened to all those people? And when you think to your point around the four different types of robots, which we can jump into just for the sake of clarity to set this whole thing up. But, um, but when you think about it, at all, uh, robots have a, probably like the best chance ever to make that happen because we invented the work week to adapt to industrial age uh, world, really, and thinking, right? But today we're living in an exponential world, so hey, why not just outsource it? I mean, it's kind of like the evolution of globalization, right? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Exactly. So I think in, if you look at the future, what's wrong with empathy being one of the most important things? Love, art, music, food. 
I'm not sure we were put on this earth without being too ethereal. I'm not sure we were put on this earth to work 40 hours and wear suits and type at computers and look at electricity. And like I said, without being ethereal, I think there's a very nice opportunity where uh, we invent what lives inside computers. So it's part of our job to make sure that what we put in those computers so that what they learn uh, will put us first. So th there's a bit of a duty there. How do you get to Mars is probably also the other question. So would you be able to do that without robots? Just a, a quick guess would probably say no. Definitely not. I mean, he's going to fly the ship. <laughs> well, yeah, we couldn't land rockets for a long... I mean, like, come on, really? <laughs> no. No, we can't do that, sorry. It has to be done by, uh, you know, at least 80% by machines. We just have to pitch up and go, right? <laughs> Thanks, Elon. <laughs> no, number two. Cool. I mean, well, I guess uh, let's make this... Um, well, let's, I always think with this kind of discussion, it's very hard to dumb this down to the real-world applications, right? So let's talk about use cases. I mean, when you talk about intelligent automation, what are some common use cases today? Uh, so in Australia, what we're working with right now is working across public service, so governments. Uh, we're working a lot in banks. Uh, so banks actually really have really driven this and been one of the primary areas for artificial intelligence, you'll know they're around anti-money laundering and around fraud detection, they've been doing it for many, many years, um, around trading, you were talking about earlier as well. Um, and within banks, we're looking at processing of mortgages, processing of personal loans, um, fulfillment areas, onboarding of customers, those sort of things. Um, within the insurance space, space we're looking at uh, claims processing, again, sales, um, we're using virtual agents to be able to sell insurance policies. Um, and then within health, I'm actually doing some work at the hospital right now where what we've done is work through the way that patients uh, confirm or actually in this case don't confirm their bookings with a specialist. And it was costing the hospital a lot of money because these are very highly paid specialists who rock up to an appointment and there's no one there because the patient hadn't confirmed or denied the fact that they were coming to the appointment. We're now using robots to actually automate that process and actually remove that person out of that particular step. Um, and what they're starting to look at now is using things like virtual agents and what we call robotic desktop automation to support nurses who are very highly paid staff who end up doing a lot of admin work that they shouldn't be doing to actually automate that piece. So we're seeing use cases across multiple industries. We've done work with um, major mining houses as well. So you know, across multiple industries, we're seeing use cases for this. So I don't know how many of the audience have heard of that insurance company called Lemonade. Yeah, peer-to-peer -peer insurance lending company. So, so the story, yeah, exactly. And the story goes there that if you have, if you're a customer of theirs or clients of theirs, to to use a better term, but if you're a client of theirs and you have a claim, you basically download the app. You take a photograph of the car that you've had a prang in because you've had too much to to drink. <laughs> I know you all have once done that before, hey? Um, <laughs> once. <laughs> but um, and so anyway, to process the whole thing from the initiation of the claim all the way through to the validation of the claim to payout takes three seconds, right? Three seconds through AI and so on and so forth. That's an example of intelligent automation, right? So I guess what's driving all of this, and I think this will be a great uh, point to kind of talk around the different types of um, robots, right? <laughs> yeah. Not the things with antennas on your head. But, um, but essentially, uh, you've got at the bottom, you've got RPAs, robotic process automation. These are the robots that essentially work in car assembly lines. Then you've got, I think it's also an RPA derivative, but it works with unstructured information through machine learning to help make sense of weather patterns and stuff like that. And then you've got our friends, the chatbots, 
as we alluded to, going on a first date. <laughs> and then right at the top, you've got uh, artificial intelligence, which is really the stuff that we spoke about pre this talk, right? So when you think about those different robotic options, where does a company start? Because you've got four different options. They all do different things. We can talk about integration in a second. But I mean, where does the average person or business owner start? So the low-hanging fruit is really around robotic process automation. So robotic process automation effectively is software that works on other software to automate it. And that's really where we're seeing a lot of the opportunities. Virtual agents is really an area where we're seeing a lot of uh, interest right now. So replacing chatbots because everyone's had that terrible experience with that chatbot. And we're really trying to avoid chatbots because when you're trying to program something that needs to be able to talk with people, it becomes really difficult. Uh, what virtual agents do is they actually listen to calls to understand the intent of the call rather than being programmed. So their responses are a lot more natural and they're able to understand a lot more of what people are looking for. So we're seeing that becoming uh, more of a space as well. And it also depends on where you're looking. So you know, what we like to think of is three distinct areas within artificial intelligence. We talk about the face, the brains, and the brawn. So the face is really the virtual agents. It requires really good customer experience and user experience design to be able to work properly. It's really the sexy part of it, right? That's what everyone sees. Then you get the brains, which is your machine learning, working within data analytics, predictive analytics, helping to predict and help augment decisions that people make. And that's actually an area that's been around for quite a while. And what's happening now is just applying more machine learning and deep learning to that to, able, to enable that to be a little more effective. Finally, the brawn is really the robotic process automation, which is really executing those decisions across systems to be able to reduce cost and improve the quality of those processes. So robotic process automation is the, really the easiest place where people are starting to work. However, what we are seeing is that there are really good ways and bad ways to do that. And um, what we'd really recommend to people out there is if they are starting on this, is that don't, make those, don't learn those lessons for yourself. Get someone to help you so you don't have to learn those lessons the hard way. I guess the question from my side is like, when? When do you start? Because it's kind of like, I always like to talk about adoption because it's the, probably the, the single biggest subject or question or angle on this subject that one should chat about because it's all very well saying, well, you know, AI exists and chatbot exists and RPA exists and here's what you can automate and so on and so forth. But many, many instances, I mean, I saw this stat uh, recently. It was about um, intelligent automation adoption in the supply chain in the US, right? So super hyper-developed economy and you would think that given the fact that they've been running around with smartphones and we're still trying to get 100% penetration here, you know, <laughs> it's like a completely different market. But when you look at that, I think the stat was like 26% of all companies. That's so low. It's unbelievably low. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you're looking at intelligent automation, like Costa, maybe you can jump in here. Um, but what's the, what are some of the common barriers to uh, the adoption of intelligent automation? And, um, and how do you company owners, executives overcome that? Matt, I'm going to make a, a quick comment before I answer your question. I think you used the, the example of, of lemonade earlier. on. I'm a discovery client, which is also a client of PwC. And my dad had an accident a couple of weeks ago and called me and said, you know, I've got this discovery app. How does it work? And I clicked on it and he gave me the functionality to take a picture of the car. It automatically through GPS pinpointed where the car was. You took a photo of the other person's ID and their um, car sticker and the claim was lodged. And then you got a, an invitation to say drop off your car on Monday at this branch or that branch to, to do it. So a lot of it's already um, hit South African shores. And your question, when do you start? You start yesterday. 
Um, we've just done a banking analysis right now, and we've concluded uh, the four, we've looked at the four large banks in South Africa and looked at the results. And there's pressures on the economic environment, and those costs are, are sitting at about 55 to 56 percent. That's the cost to income ratio. The new starters are sitting at 30 percent. Now, if revenues are growing, where should you look at? You should start looking at how you manage your cost base. And uh, so, so banks are starting to look at their processes. There's many manual processes out there. The consistency of information they're getting it is lacking sometimes. They've got challenges with data. And um, the regulators and others are exposing their, their weaknesses in data. So uh, financial institutions are starting now, as are, as are many other institutions. What are some of the risks? Well, I think it's the unknown. You've got boards out there and executive teams saying, well, to the point uh, that was made earlier, you've got automation or software onto software. That produces other risks. There's security risks. Um, what, what happens when I decide to transform my business and implement new systems? Am I going to throw that away? Is that sunk costs? So it's that risk of the unknown, and unfortunately there are many unknowns in this world when it comes to, to the subject. Yeah, just to add to that, I think that the most common thing that I, that I hear when I visit clients is they say, I'm going to wait till I put my ERP in, or I've got this other system going on, or I'm busy doing a business transformation, that's really big. I'm not sure if I want to touch this stuff right now, or I don't think I'll actually ever get there. Compared to other clients that we've met that said, okay, we'll start off and then uh, we'll experiment with this thing, we'll allow it to break a little bit, and that's okay. And then quite often they learn that that big transformation that they're trying to do, there's a way to use robots to speed up some of that stuff. Putting new kit into a business um, where there's a lot of legacy type systems left around from the 80s and early 90s, green screen, orange screen, that world, it sounds really big when you look at architecture and you hear things uh, like I'm going to drop from 40 or 30 systems down to one, giant projects running for two years. But why would I bother sticking a few robots in compared to uh, if you want to migrate data, robots working 15 or 20 times faster than a human, it's quite possible to do that. So when you look at use cases um, around the world, the right time to start is the day before yesterday and not wait. It just so happens that people are kind of waiting for the right thing until they go and check giant implementations where we've seen parts of Japan in our own firm that have done implementation involving three and 4,000 people, where they'll take a year to transform a multi-geography footprint. And this is not to say just because the nail that's sticking out is about robots and you have to hit it. I think robotics is just one part of a huge ecosystem related to digital transformation. But because we're talking about robotics today, uh, your question was when? Uh, yeah, there's a million things going on, but it just so happens that RPA is not that difficult to understand today and start. So the challenge that I, that I found with um, executives implementing innovation, because this is what this fundamentally is, right? Yes or no? This is an innovation-led agenda yeah. or strategy for an organization, right? So the thing with, um, with innovation-led projects is that an executive level, I mean, a fricky from one Fredman drive, the CTO, still thinks he can do a better job at cybersecurity than than Amazon and, you know, what the hell does Amazon know about cloud security, right? Um, so having said that, I mean, even if they do buy into intelligent automation, you're either going to be working with a big consultancy like PwC and so forth. But even then, how do you prioritize this uh, 
type of initiative because you've got 700 projects. Mm -hmm. This will be project number 701 through you know 737 or whatever. And to your points, if the top line revenues aren't growing and you've got shareholders to be accountable to, then clearly this is about profit. And so you don't have many other options other than to start to drive operational efficiencies, right? So open question to all of you, how do you convince an executive who's kind of on the fence, he's hearing about all this stuff, he knows that he needs to drive efficiencies in his business, um, but hey, I've got 700 other projects to deal with. I think it's a matter of um, priorities. So, you know, when you go to the executive and you have this conversation, what is he going to ask you? Well, what's the value? Well, there's a value to cost, which increases the the, the uh, profit, profitability at the end of the day. But then there's a value. I mean, the world's changing. The Amazons and the Googles and all these other guys are starting to take over the business. The startups are starting to come up with new ideas. Um, some of the guys with a legacy issue aren't adapting to the client in the way they should be. So everyone's talking about client centricity. But if you've got baggage and you've got looking at a, a solo systems and solo products, like many of the institutions were looking at it 10 years ago, how can you talk about client centricity? How can you talk about what really matters to, to Matt? What's important to Matt? When is it important to Matt? How do I appeal to him? And, and, and those conversations are quite important. So the sooner people realize that they have to adapt, then it's a matter of what do I need to do to adapt? And yes, Barry, I know there's uh, social issues, I know there's governments you have to deal with, displacement of people and what are they going to do, but I mean, you're going to have to deal with it sooner rather than later. I drove past that Kodak factory a few years ago when I was in, uh, traveling in the US. And um, you know, those people had to make this decision at the time to say, do we go into digital or not? They picked the wrong decision. Earlier you really touched on something, Matt, around those blockages. Really, I'm seeing internal politics and change management being really key. And a lot of the success around this relates to the ability of the people running it to be able to sell this thing correctly internally. So you were talking about Fricky and how you actually convince him that this is actually something you need to be able to do within your organization. Fricky's awesome. Yeah, Fricky's great. Um, Such a great guy. You really need to meet him. <laughs> but so, I mean, I've got clients right now where because the person leading the actual engagement and who was actually leading this particular initiative was able to get to the right stakeholders at the right time and convince them of the benefits for their particular area. He was able to win over the CIO, win over the risk officer, win over HR, because these are the areas where we see a lot of pushback. IT, you've called, called it out. IT will often say, from our enterprise architecture perspective, this doesn't fit into the architecture. We have a roadmap. That roadmap is going to be delivered in 18 months. It's going to take a million dollars or whatever, right, to deliver. And everyone's going, well, that's too slow, right? So you can then convince the CIO to say, well, this will actually help you to be able to deliver on that roadmap. Use the robots temporarily while you deliver on that roadmap. Speak to risk about how this can actually help reduce the risks in the organization rather than just, just adding additional risks. And also speaking to HR and how it can help in terms of HR onboarding, those sort of things. So I think that political sales pitch internally is absolutely crucial in being able to get everyone on the same page or what are the benefits for them and how they're going to win out of this. So I'd go even further. If organizations don't know what they want to do, these projects are relatively small to get started with. How do they, how do they build muscle? How do they find out how to build a piece of uh, augmentation, piece of robotics, artificial intelligence? 
make that work with people, think about what the changes are that they need to do, what that means for productivity, how does that relate back to their overall purpose if they don't start somewhere. And I am concerned that they're not thinking through the facts that these very human things are, are quite difficult to deal with, but if they don't start dealing with them in some way, very quickly, they'll just be left behind. This podcast was recorded, composed for, and mixed by Audio Militia, leaders in composition, final mix, and sound design. For more info, visit audiomilitia.com. What form does the pitch take? I'm always fascinated by that because, I mean, is it simply a case of saying business case, you know, opportunity costs, uh, blah, blah, blah? I mean, how does one put together the manifestation of the motivation for a intelligent automation project? That can take many guises. So it depends on the human you're dealing with. You might meet people that are just linear in thinking and saying, oh, it, is this cheap? Is it fast? How does that work? Then you're going to chat about ROIs, real numbers like between 10 and 20 times faster than what a human is, implementation periods of less than a year, payback periods that are always less than a year, things like that. Error rates of 0.2%. These are real kind of metrics that we see around our network. So that's one way, which I think is linear thinking. Compared to, uh, you, you might meet people that are trying to solve problems. That's number one. And then you don't think about processes. You kind of think in spheres, which is completely different. Like, why am I doing this? <laughs> so am I buying a robot because I want to make stuff cheap and meet my scorecard and then please the board and then I get my through, through my five-year cycle? There's quite a lot of that. And then you get uh, leaders that are thinking about how do I pervasively make the customer experience awesome every single time? And I just so happen to have some robots that can help me do this. When you spot that stuff, then it's not about metrics. So I think what we try and do is walk the journey with people to say, okay, that's cool, but stop thinking in a linear fashion of process. But concentricity of, I spoke about problems. There's another thing that's, that's particularly interesting where you harvest uh, opportunities. Now, now that stuff's difficult to spot. Um, and it's fun because when you find it, then you spot all the problems around that thing. I think that asking the right questions, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, rather than I need to try and sell you on the, uh, the concept of robots and AI and customer experience, how can I make buying an ice cream very nice in the CBD and there's no noise around me, but I want to use an app to do that to find ice cream because I like it. I've done this on purpose to pick an abstract way of there's a bunch of processes and costs and things around that and maybe I really like Italian ice cream. So how do I have that option? Give me options. I'm choosing to look at the upside of how you ask questions to clients to expose their minds to a new world of opportunity. I know shortly I'm going to hear some questions about what may not be possible, but the initial conversation is we'll spend six or seven weeks with you, we'll do a proof of value and prove it. So you'll set up something which is similar to a hypothesis and say, based on what we've seen at other clients, we would think you'd spend four or five months doing this across a number of processes. And we've got hard evidence that you always have a return of investment of between these percentages. Maybe it's 100 to 300, for example. Um, and those speed and efficiencies. When they understand and see that stuff in action, then you push the creativity button to say, okay, there's different ways to run your business now. Alistair, I think it also, those points are well made. I think it also starts off from a strategy perspective. You know, get your board to understand where it is you're going. Are you going to be an IT company or are you going to continue to be a bank or are you going to become something else? Because once you answer some of those questions, then you can say, well, 
depending on the direction I'm taking, how does this wonderful world, which I don't quite understand entirely, uh, speaking from a personal perspective, but how do I find out what intelligent automation means, what it means for my business, and what it means for my survival going forward? And then sitting back and saying, okay, now that I understand that, how do I do this in an organized fashion? How do I have a framework in place? How do I know what my risks are, what my controls are? And, and how do I implement it in the organization in a way that I can control my own destiny and I don't have uh, robots taking over my board one day? But I mean, are, are we in control? Because I think even if you do get the strategy right and you do get asked, you know, let's ask the right questions and some, by some miracle, and I use that, uh, that word deliberately, <laughs> uh, you get XCO buy-in, right? And it's like, cool, we're going to go and implement this thing. So now you've got the strategy, you've got the mobilized team, et cetera. But now there are major implications for the workforce, right? I mean, Forrester, um, there's this really ridiculous stat that basically said that 25% of all job tasks will be essentially automated by 2019. That's ridiculous. And then there's another stat I heard that like 64% of job titles for instance, that my son, who's, you know, he's two and a half, okay, let's see, he's not going to have a bank account and all that kind of <laughs> stuff too. But my point being is like 64% of job titles in the future haven't even been invented yet, yeah. right? So many of us would have heard that stat. So I guess maybe this is a question um, for you down the bottom there. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, when you think about um, roles, right, is it fair to say that roles will be transformed but not replaced? I'm not sure. I think a little bit of both. So some roles will disappear. Some probably will have new names. Some will be transformed. The question that, that organizations probably need to answer in some kind of way is, how do I retrain all of the, the people I already have? So I, I might want to keep them because they're already loyal, they work hard, uh, they know the company. What about all of those human attributes that are important to us, but they might need to train on something new? Do I have a real idea of how many percentage points of which groups will move to where in the business right now? Now I don't, but that's where you build the muscle. Am I concerned that governments have thought about what those skills are that will be required by corporates, organizations in general? And I think, uh, and, and Brandon and I have had the discussion. Is that true globally? Yes, it probably is. They haven't thought about it. Does that then mean that corporates have an additional responsibility to invest in other ways and into an education system to make sure that more of those skills are available probably. Will that require us to think differently about our own taxes and the taxes that are paid by organizations? Definitely. Um, so uh, I guess from our side, it's the knowledge gap, right? I mean, I almost find this to be an incredibly impossible thing to address because you know, it's all very well, I mean, the technology, to be fair, I mean, in the real world is actually the easy part. The rest of it is the mobilization of your workforce, the upskilling of your workforce to be able to use these things so that it transforms the roles, the role rather, and doesn't make it defunct, right? Because if you don't enable that, then I guess the easy decision for an executive is simply to say, well, listen, if I can put a, a square peg in a round hole and I don't need the, that department anymore, I'm going to do that, right? Because again, you're accountable to a shareholder. And I can tell you, like, it's, it's, it's been documented throughout history, right? If you know 
that if any company is motivated purely by profit, the decision-making of that business becomes kind of like almost predictable. Not in all cases, but in many instances, which is why Amazon is going to become the first trillion-dollar market cap company because they do not pursue profit. They pursue vision and growth. And they don't make money. I mean, they make so much top-line revenue, but they reinvest all of that simply because this is about vision and growth. And I think what I would love to see is a... CEO of a big company that does have shareholders actually stand up and I don't know if this is career suicide or not. Thank God I'm not a CEO. But, um, but <laughs> if, he, if he or she could stand up and actually put a peg in the sand and say, listen, clearly the writing is on the wall. Intelligent automation is a real thing and we are not prepared. And if we don't fundamentally change the, tra the trajectory of our business, then we won't survive. And actually, this is about what the singularity calls AQ, or the adaptability quotient, because no longer it's about IQ and EQ, it's actually about how quickly you can adapt. So with that being said, let's talk about startups. <laughs> so um, interestingly, I was in this room not so long ago, and uh, our friend, do you remember Nick Argios from Gotham? Yeah. Yeah, robot you, guy. The robot guy, yeah. So, guy. yeah. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, so he's built this really cool chatbot, right, which isn't dumb. Mm. It integrates on numerous platforms, it's intelligent, it's got a human uh, interaction layer as well, so it's not just purely algorithm-based, so it's actually pretty accurate, right? Which enables customer service to be delivered, uh, to be delivered across uh, omni-channels at scale and in a consistent fashion. Amazing, right? And so there's no way that a bank, let's take a bank, right? Pick anyone, would be able to, one, have developed that in the time that they did, at the cost they would have done, and actually be able to have the balls to implement it furthermore. So it's interesting as a kind of attention because PwC is obviously involved in the consul consultating with the clients and saying, listen, this is what we think you should do from an intelligent automation perspective. Startups are the ones building the tech. You guys are the integration experts. So how do you see yourselves working with your clients and the startup community of South Africa uh, to help enable organizations to remain future fit? Firstly, we see ourselves working very easily with them. Um, I won't call out the, the startup phenomena that we went through earlier this year, but what's important, um, our firm saw 400 startups in Africa, putting our money where our mouth is. We're not reading about it and watching videos on YouTube. Nick was a very good example. I quite enjoy that. So the story behind that is that he's a rock star that now created robots and he's just happened to be very good at math. Why I like that is because if you said that sentence maybe a year ago to anybody in this room, including myself, I would have said, no chance. However, applying that, that's a very good example of how they found a niche in the market to use uh, robots at Burger King. Uh, Ford had cars that are burning on the side of the road. They couldn't deal with volume. Uh, Nick's bots were there. Why I'm calling out this example, there's a bunch of others, there's 10 of them, um, is that I think you can have modular business design and that is specifically designed to deal with um, disruptive innovation of which technology just happens to be one component. So uh, that's something very close to my heart. I believe that the future of the way consulting will successfully, not only successfully, but exponentially move up that curve as part of our responsibility is to challenge our own thinking to think differently. So what happens there, I, th I think when we sat in this room, it was in Startup Bootcamp, I purposefully said to that audience, I believe that we should have the suit and eyebrow ring in the same room, always, because with giant corporations uh, such as PwC, you get the stability and breadth, um, tools, 
the risk management, the governance, all of those awesome things that you need. What we don't get is speed and agility and uh, creativity. There's people in the world in startups that spend all of their time only doing that. And I think there's a huge creative element to the way that they look at the world, which is not meeting a board member and trying to sell them something or build a relationship and convince them. It's a group of people that gather together and passionately try to solve a problem. And the way that we will be working with them, are you, am I just saying something wrong, man? That wasn't me, yeah, that definitely wasn't me. <laughs> I'll go away now if you want me to, other guys can talk. It's fine. It's He's, fine. I think it's one of those rooms that it hits the time where the, the uh, invite you know what ends that is and there. That's automatically in, goes that's off. That's intelligent automation in action <laughs> yeah. right there. It's pretty much a dumb automation. Right? <laughs> that's kind of, yeah, but dumb. It's still it's none less impressive. This <laughs> is defunct. <laughs> but, but, Alrighty. So to, to, to add on what Alistair is saying, I mean, what, what is our role as PwC? Uh, I think we played two parts that Alistair didn't mention. Number one is we... We coach those new startups because, as you said, some of these guys are IT programmers. They've never learned how to do business. Mm. And in some instances, we've actually taken those new startups to our clients mm. because our clients are interested in, in, in seeing new initiatives and seeing how they could improve their business. So uh, I think PwC have got a natural role to play in helping startups as well as uh, clients. So it's great to hear, to be honest, because I think as a business community, actually... And from a sustainability perspective, it's kind of like you have, we all have to work with, you know, what we sometimes, I suppose, looking back historically, have, you know, viewed as threats to us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because if you don't, then, you know, again, you run that risk. But I just want to harp the, on, the, on, the, um, on the subject a bit more around workforce uh, impact. Um, so if you think about intelligent automation, I think most companies are concerned with job losses fundamentally, right? Um, so if you're an executive, uh, I, have, I have to ask you guys this. Two things. One, um, how does PwC view the future of work and robotics? And two, based on what you say, how do you, or what would you say to an executive, a CEO of a company who is very concerned with the impact on his workforce and how would you allay his fears about the future of work? difficult. I would tell him that there will be more opportunities for his staff that he has not thought about, which is the positive side. On the other hand, I would really try and convince them to start with programs in skilling up their people earlier rather than later, in areas that they mightn't have done that before. And in fact, I'd ask them to go even further and think about the schooling sector and how they could do more there as well. And I think the same would be true for PwC in the sense that we'd have to play a role in, in terms of spanning the corporate and education sectors and helping, I think, schooling as well as higher education to prepare people for this world. That's one of the jobs that we'd have to do. And by doing that, helping them to be more positive about the future. I was really encouraged by a meeting Alistair and I just had with one of the CIOs of one of the large insurance companies where he was saying, He's not prepared to do RPA until he figures out a way that's not going to be a cost-out benefit, it's going to be a revenue uplift benefit. So he, what he's actually doing is designing his business in such a way that whatever they do, they're not going to get people onto the street. Those are his words exactly. So very encouraging, him thinking about that, how it's going to work. What we're doing in Australia is there's a group called Skills for Australia, which is a 
uh, a body that provides consulting to the government in terms of what sort of investments should be made in education going forward. So what we're doing there is providing input into them on what are the skills and what are the things that should be invested in for universities going forward in teaching people and how to be able to respond to these things. I think the AQ thing you said is absolutely crucial. Yeah. We don't know what the skills are that people need to know in the future. Problem solving sentiment and being able to understand other people, communication skills, these are the things that are going to be valuable in the future. And so those are the things we really need to focus on going forward. Yeah. I, I think what might be useful is just to think, help them understand which jobs will probably disappear. Yeah. I think there's really good research available now. I had a long, good discussion with Costa the other day about what would happen to accountants, for instance. But um, we have a reasonably good idea based on good research out of Oxford and, and a few other places on which jobs will be most automated. And let's help organizations have a look at what those look like and help them think through, if, if, if that's true of that section of jobs, where are the others that they haven't thought about them? And that's already something you can practically do today. So what are some of the exciting job roles, right, that we see or you guys see coming to in, into fruition, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know, let's, let's spitball this because I think it's interesting, number one. And then number two is, Let's talk about business models, right? Because this also represents a fundamental shift in what's possible. Going back to our kind of, you know, barriers to adoption slash implementation, all that other stuff. I mean, this is about getting excited about the possibilities as it is about avoiding risk. Well, well let me start off by saying, um, let me answer the first part of your question. So, and I'll, I'll give you my response to Barry's question when he asked me. Um, what, do you, what do you think of accountants? And I'm an accountant myself, so this is an accountant speaking. And um, I, somebody asked me the other day, what are you going to advise your kids to study? And the first, my first answer was not accounting. <laughs> I think accounting as we know it today um, will probably not exist in the form we know it today. But I think some of the qualities I've learned, like problem solving, understanding your clients' needs, and reacting to that will still exist. I think the world is moving much more into that technology phase. So I would advise my kids to look at, uh, like Alistair, maybe engineering or computer science, uh, somewhere along those lines, or become a philanthropist, uh, I think, uh, or become a good chef, because I think food will be around for a while. Yeah. Um, <coughs> those are some initial thoughts from my perspective. We hope, unless we start 3D printing it. Yeah. Printing AI. food is a trick. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, any other views? I think there's a whole lot of jobs. Uh, earlier I alluded to the fact that there's a, there's a huge creativity component that um, you, when people move away from fear, naturally people like uh, music, art, food, for example. There's a thing there about um, how do I create an awesome experience which gives me all the options I want in a restaurant. Uh, maybe it doesn't have to be a restaurant anymore. Maybe it's a journey. So those jobs about um, how do I make other people's lives awesome and remove all the boring stuff is the headline for me that's still going to come. So th there's that. Then there's some hardcore stuff around uh, data science and creating insights. Why this is important, uh, I met a guy in Boston in May this year who's using machine learning to uh, create artificial seeds. I'll keep away from like, what the FDA might think about that, but he's trying to solve the problem of creating seeds which are cheaper and faster to grow than rice um, so that he can feed Africa. Yeah. What I like about that is that's a whole different ballgame in terms of what kind of job do I need to know uh, around agri-tech and what new problems can I solve. So problem-solving people don't always have to just look at numbers. They'll think about uh, food, 
art. We, I mean, we, there was a classic case where one of our teams sent around uh, the recreation of uh, a Van Gogh. So it exists today. Like, what would he have created? It's a pretty long story, but it's worth checking out on YouTube. Those jobs were designed, so art was designed by data scientists. <laughs> you can do that all day long if you get an army of people that don't have to check things anymore, but create stuff, but using data. So I think those jobs still need to be discovered. Um, who would have thought 10 years ago that you would say mathematicians create awesome art? But it's true today. Yeah, um, so let's talk about the, um, the actual realities around, for instance, if you're going to end up, let's put it this way, if you're going to implement intelligent automation again, let's talk about the, the meat and the potatoes, the really cool and exciting stuff, policies, right? Oh. I, mean, how, I mean, is it a complete rewrite? Is it a case of amending what you have? Do you need to do it at all? It's, it's a huge blocker if you don't actually think about it up front. We, we actually talked to some clients there about saying you need to do the right homework before you get into this. So because this is so easy and so quick to do relatively to other types of technologies, a lot of organizations are getting into it really fast and then getting stuck very quickly as well. So we've got a client right now, a large uh, multinational company, who've got 60 robots running on laptops, and they're going, what do we do now? How do we run these things? What's the operating model around those sort of things, right? So you want to try and avoid those things. You want to put that homework in place. One of those things is around policy change. A lot of organizations are around risk policies. And how do you actually look at implementing these robots in such a way that you actually get the benefits, right? Because if you have two risk-averse policies in place, you lose out on the benefits, right? So that's one of the things that you have to bite the bullet and make those changes up front. I've seen it over and over again where organizations go, they don't bite the bullet, they just kind of avoid risk, they go and implement the robots and then they hit a, hit a roadblock where they actually can't do what they want to do because they didn't do that. Um, I think things around IT policies as well is critical as well, being able to get the right basics in place in terms of how you run these things. And there's something, these are not gonna be, this is not a silver bullet, right? If you have problems with the data, if you have problems with the systems, you need to go fix those things, right? Particularly in the AI world, it requires large amounts of quality data to be able to work with it. And so you cannot use this to solve those problems. And so some of those blockers that organizations solve is fix your data, fix your systems, get those basics right, to prepare yourself for this, because the startups don't have those problems. They don't have the legacy data and legacy systems to deal with, so you need to get those fixed now so that you at least keep pace with them. Um, so I'm going to open the uh, podcast up for questions in a second, but one more question before we do, um, and this is an open question to all of you. I mean, thinking about everything that we've covered here, um, what in your view is the kind of key message for leaders around the world who are listening to us right now uh, when it comes to intelligent automation? Embrace change and start today. And it's not that bad. It's quite exciting. <coughs> Start thinking about uh, your people sooner rather than later, and start thinking about how you can how you can utilize that spare capacity in a different way to make you unique and and respond to to your customers in a better way. Hey, I'd also say start thinking about the people and think how you can support them not only within your organisation but more widely within the greater community. Get a strategy in place start working towards that strategy and iterate and get the right governance around this and get help. 
get help immediately. <laughs> the end is coming. All right. Um, okay. So, um, any questions from our audience? Jandre, I know you're chewing on one right there, buddy. I can see it. Yes, yeah, so this is actually often when we include people from the beginning of this journey and are transparent to them about what we're doing rather than keeping it secret squirrel, uh, they, they come along the journey and they get excited about this. And we've got people who've gone from being credit controllers to being automation controllers. So rather than making credit decisions, actually managing the bots who are making those credit decisions now. And they've made complete career changes into those areas. Um, the thing is that that's not everybody. Not everybody's going to be excited about looking after a bunch of bots, make sure that they're running correctly. So a lot of it's got to do with people's own desires and needs and wants. And we always have to take that into consideration. It's not just about skills, but what do those people, those particular people want as well. Um, any other questions? Come on, guys. This is awesome. Someone, anyone, anything at all? No? I have one. Okay, there you go. So isn't the point of robots to take our jobs? <laughs> yes. Bang. Yes, it is. <laughs> just like that. The, the point is just to take some of our jobs. Yeah. If, you, if you try and meander away from that problem, it is just a problem. It is exactly that. The question is which jobs? And those jobs filled with drudgery uh, that are yeah. transactional in nature, those are probably the jobs that you'll, we will lose. The question is, is which other jobs have we... And, and, and it's really difficult to do because you can't even perceive some of those jobs that would be would potentially be in the future. Things where your job could be augmented from a medical p perspective. Um, there's some really interesting work around handicap, the care for handicapped people and robotics out of Japan. They you know, make you teary-eyed because we've not thought about those jobs yet. I think there are many things like that which I can't even think through. Yes, we'll lose some jobs, but we'll gain others. And, and, and I don't think I don't want to just for, for the normal ones, just managing other bots or uh, perhaps there's a whole new industry around food and or right. leisure that we've not thought about. Yeah. yeah. Oh, something that I haven't uh, had an implementation of robotics with a group of people who haven't gotten excited about it. Because to your point, Often what you're automating is the drudgery, the admin, the stuff that people hate doing. And everyone gets really excited because actually what they find is there's a bunch of stuff that they should have been doing but they weren't doing, right? It opens up the opportunity for them to start working on those things that really add value to the organization, allow them to start using their brain again, right? So this, I, I just see people getting really excited about this whenever we do it. Okay, so what industries should avoid intelligent automation and robotics, if any? That's a really interesting question. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of one. What, what would be a blocker would be an organization that currently has not uh, put any processes in place. So you actually, you, know, you actually haven't got a really good view of what your processes are, how they work. There are too many variations. There's too much paper in the process. The robots can't work on it. The data is not of a high quality. The systems maybe are slow. Because bots can only work as well as the systems that they're working on. Bots can only work as well as the data that's there. So if you're an organization that actually has some key fundamental technology challenges that need to be resolved, you probably want to fix those first before you get bots involved. That's the only thing I would say. I haven't seen an industry that I wouldn't take robotics into. There are obviously areas that are far, really the ones leading the pack. It's generally been financial services. We're seeing uh, public services, government really coming into play now. 
Um, health is really driving. Health is actually one of the fastest growing areas across AI and robotics right now. So, you know, we're seeing a little cross in multiple areas. So I wouldn't say there's a particular industry that I would avoid. Uh, what about um, after daycare for kids? Is that an industry that robotics should dive into? Well, you see, if you have an after daycare for kids, that's a large enough organization that requires a shared service center to run its, you know, its, <laughs> its, its accounts payable, to run its procurement, all this. yes, then you probably want to do it. Back office automation, not the front side, right? Definitely not the front side. Cool, Frankie, you good, buddy, you good. <laughs> oh, there was a question over here. So the question is, at what point will intelligent automation actually start to become a real reality, really, in the home, right? Uh, guys, Alistair? So I won't chat about South Africa, but I think when your public services start getting into this stuff, your, like your heat bill and water, electricity, sanitation, those things, I think then your customer experience starts becoming... Um, nice, not great yet, uh, because those things should be removed. You asked when, uh, when people understand, that's when. So, so not all of it, but if, you, if you're into green energy and you live in Tswane or in Joburg, you can already measure it differently, push things back into the grid, um, check how that works, monitor with the city council part of that, that's really today. There are some great tools like IFTTT, so if you go take a look at that, if this, then that, um, it's got a whole bunch of recipes that you can help automate your life, it's fantastic. Within tools like Slack that a lot of the startups use, there's a lot of Slack bots that you can actually build and automate your life through those. Um, and, you know, I, I, in Australia we've got an uh, organization called Pocketbook, it used to be 22-7 I think here in South Africa, that automate your transactions through your banking and really help you manage your budget in a, in a more automated way. So I think there are a lot of those tools coming through right now that can help you in your, in your personal life. Siri's getting smarter, right? So the new Siri that's coming out on the ISLM is going to be smarter, going to be able to do more things. Amazon Alexa's getting smarter, Google Echoes, I mean, Google Home's getting smarter. So I think, you know, these things are coming. And there are actually a lot of smart home um, devices you can use right now, and they're actually pretty easy to install. You know, like as you walk up to your door, the lights switch on, switches on the TV for you, you know, you walk in, all those sort of things. So there are things that you can do already right now. I think it just takes a bit of investment in, of time and trying to find out what those things are and be able to use them. Also, it's the benefits of it. I mean, like, do you know what I mean? Like, if you've been, for 38 years, you've been turning on your own lights when you walk home or open up your bloody garage. I mean, for a machine to do that, it's kind of like, well, what's the opportunity cost you? You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like, do I want to be cool on Friday nights when I invite my mates around to come Look at the garage opens up on its own, you know. Oh, the fridge just ordered you an extra six pack. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like the so what brigade. Although having for now, but uh, but I would say like I don't know. My view, please, all of you guys, get onto YouTube and watch a video by Scott Galloway about how Amazon's dismantling the retail complex. That's like a much must watch video. I don't know how many of you have actually watched that thing. Okay. You, Amazon, yeah, Echo and all that kind of stuff and how basically the signaling, signaling the end of a brand, right? Like the fundamental principle about why brands matter to consumers is being completely dismantled by smart home automation through Alexa, right? So the idea being is that, and I'll sum it up for you, but basically you'll say, Alexa, order batteries. And it will do a quick search through AI algorithms for batteries on Amazon. Now, it won't look for the, all eight different types of brands. It will only look for Amazon batteries. So if you, in other words, it'll say it'll be $2.99 for a pack of four. Amazon batteries, right? And it say, no, search for Alexa, search for other batteries. 
and it'll say these are the only batteries that are available. But if you go to the website, the other seven different brands of batteries will be there. So essentially what Amazon's doing is actually putting the customer really at the center and saying, if you don't drop your prices, Mr. Supplier, you will not essentially have your product delivered through our massive, massive Amazon infrastructure, essentially, to any customers. And it will decide in a nanosecond about whether or not your brand is actually the right brand to suggest. So in the future, we'll just it'll literally be order a six-pack, order milk, order bread, and it'll work out over time what your behavioral consumption patterns were, and it'll almost predict and say, hey, it's, you know, would you like to order another six-pack because you're an alcoholic? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, so, but I mean, like, this is where, where it's going, right? So, I mean, it's exciting, but it's also, I guess, in my view, like, who's going to adapt to that kind of a threat, right, which is owning the home. And I think that's actually where the true battleground of the future from a brand perspective um, and a digital enablement perspective is going to happen. Uh, any other questions? Cool, great question. So when 75% of all jobs are automated, what will the 75% of the population of the earth be doing for income and money? I'll, 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 <laughs> I'm going to ask Siri. Siri. Uh, it's fine, buddy. I got your back. I have a view on that one. Uh, so, so do you want to answer it? Uh, hang on, wait, sorry, no, because y'all won't pick you up. You can ask a question, but you can't answer this question, sorry. Um, but, um, but there's this thing called universal basic income, uh, which I actually, well, it's probably decades away from being a reality, but the promise being that doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what country you live in, or how much you know, what your skills are, how well you adapt, or how intelligent you are, what you EQ, it doesn't matter. But because you are alive and because you belong to the planet Earth, you will receive a basic income. And it will be cryptocurrency based, most likely, essentially putting everyone onto uh, a level playing field around economies of scale. Um, and so everybody will have an income. The hope would be, well, no one knows, right? But I mean, the hope would be that if you have free time, that you would want to be making a difference to humanity. So whether that would be around research and sustainability of farming, or whether it's looking at different applications of, of um, you know, seed DNA, essentially, or whether it's about curing cancer or HIV or any of these things, that's the hope, right? So I guess you have two schools of thought. One is robots are going to kill all of us in the end of the world in World War Three, probably, right, if Donald Trump's still in power. Uh, but contrary to that, you know, it may actually be our biggest saving grace. But we will know in the next few years. I'm so, detecting so, a common theme here. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's a statement. Robots must leave us alone so we can continue living our lives. So, gentlemen over there, what did you would like to... you? Yeah, what, well, this is what the blockchain and cryptocurrencies promise, right? So we don't know, but we're going to find out, right? So either cryptocurrencies will... I mean, we, remembering that we evolved, right? So it went from like gold or essentially an actual thing that we thought was valuable... Uh, which in reality was just a better conductor of electricity, and we said that's valuable, that's gold, that's platinum, that's silver. We assigned value to that thing. And then, you know, we introduced the gold standard, Great Depression happened, they basically, you know, removed essentially 
a hard-backed currency or something of actual value because now we have the bullshit standard. So money today is actually worth this, right? Hence inflation in the monetary system, as we know, is basically going to bomb, right? Hence 2008, the financial crisis, and we, this is the 57th time that this has happened. And it's going to get you know, exponentially worse. So having said all of that, we are looking for other options. Outside of digital cash, so cryptocurrencies is the next thing, but we don't know whether it's going to be a store of value, we don't know if it's going to be something that will be traded, but I can tell you something, out of all the different options that are out there, it's highly likely that that is the future of money, right? As we know it, because it's not cash, it's about the value that that thing represents to us as a society, and we are working that out, uh, slowly but surely, but when it comes, then, you know, how awesome would that be? I mean, like, I genuinely believe, like, my son, who's two and a half, will never have a bank account. He, he, what for? Why on earth would he have a bank account? You have a mobile phone and a wallet and an app. Cheers. We can already do that today. Uh, any other questions? Okay, cool. So I just want to say thank you to Costa, Alistair, Brandon, and Barry. Uh, thank you for your time. Please give them a round of applause. And thank you for your time. It's been an honor and a privilege to explore this subject with you. So you've been listening to The Matt Brown Show. Thank you. Uh, sorry, there's drinks and beers and, and all sorts of cool things outside. So feel free to network and ask some questions and meet the panel. So there you have it, guys. What an amazing show. Thank you to PwC for joining the Matt Brown Show in a live podcast format. If you would like more information on PwC and intelligent automation, please visit bit.ly forward slash PwC Robotics or ping me up on Twitter. That's at Matt Brown ZA. And I will catch you all again soon. The Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown, Matt Brown, Matt Brown Show. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients, Haiku, went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.